Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is class three of our uh, 2021 Vipassana Structured Study. Um, this, this talk is on the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the sutta where the Buddha uh, describes uh, noble searches and ignoble searches. And the interesting thing, among many interesting thing, is how um, myself and I think most modern uh, Buddhist um, seekers maybe you could even say spiritual seekers, we tend to um, grasp onto and immediately validate anything that's new that we happen to be studying as a so-called, use it loosely, spiritual or Buddhist practice. Um, and it almost always goes, it follows an instant infatuation or entanglement with um, with whatever the Dharma uh, mine happened to be. Um, and what the Buddha found, what he describes, it takes much more of a um, a discerning eye to not let that happen. It's very easy to fall into the trap of association, uh, the trap of um, uh, putting time in with something uh, and that alone gives it validation. In other words, I extended myself. This must be right. This must be me. I couldn't be wasting my time, etc., etc., etc. And me, that built up over the years to where I couldn't see anything clearly. I was just stuck in this wrong view that this must be the right practice because of the wonderful people, the great teachers, my friends, my associates, um, the, the the mystical aspects that I I like, not me. Um, but whatever it is that gets us entangled is what will protect and what will insist is real. Excuse me. Right off the bat, uh, the, the Buddha's brilliance is, is obvious where he, he begins this search with a healthy level of specul... specul of, can't think of the right word. <laughs> yeah, a healthy dose of it. And so he, he's, he's naturally not going to get entangled unless something first proves its efficacy to him. And so he studied with, with all of the famous teachers of his time. Two come to mind that he mentions often, uh, Alara Kalama and Udeka Ramaputta, and as you'll see in the sutta, he studies their dharmas, he masters them, so much so that he's given a leadership position. So he's given what everybody wants. He's given notoriety, he's given power. He would have been given a lot of money for what he was doing, and he rejected it all simply because it didn't lead to his goal. And his goal was clearly defined in his own mind, understanding. His goal wasn't recognition. His goal wasn't power. He wasn't validating his own fabricated beliefs by recognition or granted power or wealth that might follow. He wanted to understand. And so because he had that level of right mindfulness or refined mindfulness, he did not get entangled in the things that would largely entangle most human beings. So the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, like I said, I probably won't, this will probably be a two-part class. There's a lot here. Well, give me a second. Sarah. Let me just let Sarah come in. 
Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the class. I'm just getting started now. So, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta. On one occasion, the Buddha was in Savati at Jita's Grove and Nathapandika's monastery. He adjusted his robes and taking his alms bowl, he left for town for his daily meal. A large group of monks approached Ananda. It has been a long while since we heard a Dhamma talk from the great teacher. It would be for our long-term benefit, benefit to hear a Dhamma talk from the awakened one. Venerable one, Dananda said, perhaps if you went to the hermitage of Ramaka, you will get to listen to a Dhamma talk from the Buddha. You'll see Ananda's being a little bit sly there. We will do as you say, Venerable Ananda. The Buddha had returned from alms and asked Ananda to accompany him to the eastern park in the palace of Megara's, Megara's mother for the day's abiding. Then, having spent the day in seclusion, the Buddha asked Ananda to accompany him to the eastern gatehouse to bathe. Having bathed, Ananda said to his teacher, The hermitage of Ramaka is nearby. It is, a pleasant, it is pleasant and delightful. There are many there awaiting your teaching. It would be of benefit to them and out of sympathy if you were to go there. The Buddha agreed and they left for Ramaka's hermitage. As they approached, they heard a Dhamma discussion underway. The Buddha waited for the discussion to end. What he got? What are you eating, Bodhi? Uh, hearing silence, he cleared his throat and, and knocked to announce his arrival. Upon entering, he sat on a prepared seat and addressed the Sangha. For what discussion were you all gathered here? Great teacher, we were discussing you, and then you arrived. Good, the Buddha says. It is fitting that you have gone forth from good families, from home to homelessness, and gather for Dhamma discussion. When you gather as a Sangha, <coughs> you should always discuss the Dhamma or practice noble silence. That's one of the Podimokshas, one of the one of the um, guidance, or you could even say vows, that uh, prospective monks and nuns agree to when they take uh, when they when they take their vows. Friends, there are two types of searching for understanding. There is ignoble searching, and noble searching, and it really is that cut and dried in the Buddhist Dhamma. You're either searching where the Dhamma can be found, or you're not, and it, and that is the practice of wise restraint that we develop through the Eightfold Path. It simply is a waste of time to practice a ninefold path or a onefold path or a fivefold path and not practice an eightfold path because it's only an eightfold path in its completeness that will deliver awakening as the Buddha teaches. And what is ignoble searching? Ignoble searching occurs when a person subjects to birth or giving birth to a moment rooted in ignorance seeks happiness in what is also subject to giving birth rooted in ignorance. It makes common sense, or perfect sense, doesn't it? If we're hoping to end ignorance in a belief system or thought consciousness, ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, it can only continue to give birth to another moment in ignorance. Isn't that right? That's what the Buddha um, considered post his awakening. Is there a way to teach this in a way that will pierce that powerful but very subtle veil of ignorance that all human beings uh, uh, suffer from. And that's when he, de he developed the Eightfold Path as a framework and guidance that's necessary to pierce that veil of ignorance. Excuse me. Ignobles, the Buddha continues, Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to sickness 
seeks happiness and what is also subject to sickness. So you see how this relates to the Buddha's description of dukkha. Birth is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, aging is dukkha, um, death is dukkha. Not getting what is desired is dukkha, getting what is undesired is dukkha. In short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. So you can see, even in the, the Truth of Happiness Dhamma study just completed, and in this structure study of Vipassana, we're going over a few key themes in different ways, dependent origination and five clinging aggregates in particular right here. So searching for understanding in the aspect of the conditioned thinking that's rooted in ignorance, such as uh, the, the searching where sickness is, where, where we're giving birth to, where aging is, where disappointment is, where aversion is, seeking in those arenas with the exclusion of everything outside of the arenas is only going to keep us within the arena, the ignorance arena. I don't think I ever used that, that direct phrase, arena. But that really is what we're fighting. We're fighting the, the, good, the good fight in an arena that it can't be won. We have to step out of that arena. And how do we find a path to step out? Where, where is the path to, to the doorway, if you will? It's the eightfold path. And if we're not walking that eightfold path, if we're not developing the eightfold path, we're simply going to be stuck in this feedback loop of, of self-referencing the, the disease that we're in, the sickness, the death, the disappointment, the aging. We're doing it all from within that, that fabricated perspective. And so there's no way to extricate ourselves. That's what the Buddha's teaching here. Ignoble searching occurs when a person subjects to aging seeks happiness to what is also subject to aging. So again, what is also subject to aging? Being stuck in the belief that, that it causes me to take aging in a personal way. Of course, once I let go of that, abandon that wrong view, I still age as a physical human being, but it's not something that I take personal. And that doesn't mean that I'm indifferent to it. In fact, I'll probably manage my sickness, aging, and death in a much more skillful way if I'm facing it head on, facing it with awareness, rather than continued ignorance. Oh, I'm never going to die, or I never should be sick, or none of this should ever happen to me. That's all a distraction, and it, it precludes me from taking wise and skillful action, no matter what's occurring right here and right now. Ignoble searching, ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to death seeks happiness in what is also subject to death. So what's a, a good ex example, a glaring example, would be modern Buddhism. And it's, it's, um, it's aversion to death by creating... Endless dharmas, fake dhammas, endless fabricated dharmas that seek to establish a person in a non-physical realm as payment for being a good Buddhist now. That's, just, that's the same as many modern religions, and it's the same thing that modern Buddhist religions have adopted and adapted in, in sometimes obvious and sometimes subtle ways. But all forms of modern Buddhism teach salvation in one form or another. In other words, if you do all things right in this lifetime, Meaning that it really doesn't matter what your human life is like because you're going to get your reward for being a damn good Buddhist in some future life. In most modern Buddhism, it's not even declared as a next life. It could be some life that's eons in the future, but keep doing the good deal and you'll get your reward. That wasn't good enough for me, even though I bought into it for many years. And it was finally when I got frustrated with that same, to me now, bit of nonsense. It's just keep doing it and you'll get re your reward. Was I able to find what the Buddha actually taught? So I had to, I had to um, reject exactly the same thing that the Buddha was rejecting, and the same thing that I'm asking you all to do 
in order to gain awakening. That's why I'm, I'm so emphatic about it. You cannot practice a fabricated dharma and incorporate it into a, a reality-based dharma. It simply doesn't work. Excuse me. This is what the Buddha realized in this sutta and what he taught for 45 years. Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to, sor- subject to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, aversion, to delusion, seeks happiness in what is also subject to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, aversion, and delusion. Delusion Again, it makes sense. Um, the life of an addict or the life of anybody with a noticeable um, severe compulsion is an, an, an obvious way of looking at this, a good way of looking at it. But every human being who is rooted in ignorance has some form of compulsive behavior, even if it's a compulsion to maintain fabricated views, which is the, the common human dukkha, if you will. Um, an extreme example of good would be um, a drug addict. I couldn't, I couldn't keep out of mind the object of my greed, distress, and despair, the object of my deluded thinking, the object of my ignorance. It was the essence of alcoholism and drug addiction that I keep thinking about, when am I getting my next fix? When am I getting my next fix? Even though that next fix was likely going to kill me, and I knew it. But I still was driven to do it. That's the best example of mindfulness that I can give. All mindfulness is not good. All not mindfulness is not refined mindfulness. It is mindfulness that causes human beings to suffer. It's mindfulness that causes human beings to fight holy wars. They're holding in mind the fabricated belief in their Savior wants them to do this. Alec Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. Well, that is a common fa- fabrication of all human beings. On the, I was talking to someone earlier. I can't remember if it was one of you. Forgive me if it was. Um, the most common human disease, mental disease, is the, is the Messiah com- complex, be, believing that I can save you. And it's what gets us in the, into the most trouble as human beings. It's what's ruling many governments worldwide. This belief first that, that, that a, a population needs salvation and then holding yourself as the most obvious point of salvation is the, most, the best way to keep power in this world. And it's used over and over again, whether it's in governments or in personal relationships. I know the way. I know the fix. I can fix you. And often we take that from a, um, I, don't want, I don't want to get too deep into that. Often people that have made changes in their lives that helped them personally now become proselytizers for that same change. In other words, because I did it, you must all do it. And I see it all the time in, uh, in the 12-step rooms. People that have you know 18 seconds of uh, sobriety now are going to help the whole world stay sober when they don't even know how they did it. And again, I'm not putting down people, but that is very typical. Uh, in the Dhamma, it doesn't happen, does it? Because in the Buddha taught us how to teach the Dhamma, even though we may be very enthusiastic about what it's done for me. Ehepasiko. You have to come and see for yourself. And that's again what the Buddha is saying here, how to know what a noble search and an ignoble search is. You, do it, you know it by your, uh, the results of it. And what is subject to birth, the Buddha asks. Spouses and children are subject to birth. Excuse me. Remember, the Buddha said, uh, birth is suffering. And if spouses and children are, are subject to birth, he's also saying they're subject to causing dukkha in our lives. Excuse me. So what does he mean by that? And isn't it, 
isn't accept isn't it acceptable that spouses or children should should prove to bring us dukkha? Uh, it depends on how we're looking at that. The Buddha is talking about in, in, the, in the overarching Buddhist Dhamma is taking things personal because of something because our thinking is rooted in ignorance. And so when we take our spouses or our childrens personally, we form an ownership over our spouses and our children. They are mine. Excuse me. And and because now I have joined with my spouse and joined with my children, I'm getting a a sense of belonging to the world because of my reference to who who's my spouse and who's my children. When any change occurs in those children, as the Buddha teaches, there's going to be stress and suffering, including it might just be the change of my spouse is no longer happy to be with me. That's a change that's common, isn't it? But if I am taking my identity from being entangled with that spouse, joined with that spouse, it's going to cause me great pain and suffering. Not just the pain and suffering of getting used to not having this person in my life, but the pain and suffering that's fabricated that's leading to me thinking I'm being rejected because of having that person in my life. That's what the Buddha is talking. And it is taking it personal that is is causing me to be subject to another person who is who is subject to birth, meaning subject to change. The same thing with our children. Our children are going to, to change, and it's not just the obvious. What if my children gets a, a terrible illness, is going to die? Many of us who have had children have anxiety when children leave the house. They leave the nest. That's an aspect of this. Uh, and again, it's not right or wrong, but it's to be noticed that we're, that we're craving and clinging is at its most pernicious and difficult to notice, is at its most subtle. Spouses, friends, children. The Buddha continues. Other men and women are also subject to birth. Animals or all types are subjects to birth. Gold and silver, meaning material wealth, are subject to birth. As soon as I attach myself to that large pile of gold I have in the back room, now I'm subject to the the impermanence, excuse me, Yeah, the impermanence of that gold. In other words, the house could burn down and I never find it, or somebody breaks in and steals my gold, or something else could happen. Um, Richard Nixon could be born again and take us off the gold standard. Not many of you remember that reference. Gold is as impermanent as everything else. It's as impermanent as a mountain, as impermanent as a horse, and as impermanent as anything we can look at. What we, How we identify ourselves with our gold is also identifying with our wealth. And it could be the most secure T-bill or whatever you mind with Bitcoin. It doesn't matter. It's all impermanent. And in fact, I would say that the more things we do to make what is impermanent permanent is an ongoing distraction. And again, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be somewhat prudent with the things that we own in our money, et cetera, et cetera. But if we're attached to it and attached to a certain number, allowing us to sleep at night, we're in deep trouble. Because we're attaching ourselves to something that is inherently impermanent. That's what the Buddha is talking about. And if we look for understanding in what is subject to birth or impermanence, we're setting ourselves up for stress and suffering. When these are seen as acquisitions, one becomes attached and infatuated with these acquisitions. Seeking happiness with what is subject to birth is an ignoble search. Likewise, these are all subject to to sickness, aging, to death, Sorry, to death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, distress, to greed, aversion, and delusion. Seeking happiness in any of these other aspects of what is subject to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, 
Greed, aversion, and delusion is ignoble searching. And what is noble searching? I'm just going to read this quickly and then end it for tonight. And what is noble searching? Noble searching is, while being subject to birth, seeking to understand the suffering of birth, seeking the unborn, the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. What is the Buddhist talking about? The Buddha's talking about the entire Dhamma here. Noble searching is while being subject to birth. That's such an important line. While being subject to the effects of ignorance, here's a way of recognizing and abandoning your own ignorance. That's the brilliance of the Buddha's Eightfold Path. I'm going to read it again. Noble searching is while being subject to birth, seeking to understand the suffering of birth, seeking the unborn, the unexcelled, the release, the yoke, the unbinding. The, um, the unexcelled, the release. Release from what? Again, what are we talking about? Release from ignorance. Ignorance of Four Noble Truths is the yoke we wear, wear around our necks as the burden of an uninformed, ignorant human life. Once ignorance is recognized and abandoned, the yoke is gone. Re- release has been affected. This is what is called the unbound state or the state of unbinding. We're no longer clinging to or bound to wrong views that are characterized by wrong associations and, and, and fabricated dharmas. Excuse me. So, ignoble searching is any type of search in the context of so-called spiritual practice, uh, self-understanding, Buddhist practice, you might even call it New Age dogma. Um, any of that is ignoble if it's outside of what the Buddha taught, as far as being, being an authentic Dhamma practitioner. If any of you are enamored with something else and you want to practice it, and it doesn't distract from your developing the Eightfold Path, I would say go ahead and do it. What I would say, though, is I haven't found anyone who's been able to practice two types of seemingly spiritual practices at the same time without diminishing probably both of them. But uh, again, I'm not taking a stand against it. I'm just saying I don't know if it's possible. And for my own self, the Buddha's Dhamma had the most effect when the only thing I focused on was it. So... um, let the, let's go around the room. I think I'll start at the bottom with Tim. Tim, how are you? Hello, everybody. Um, so my mic. Thanks for the teaching, John. My pleasure. Um, Thank you. I, I want to start with a question for you. Um, I always wondered this. And I think this is a good time to ask it. I think I know the answer, but I wanted to ask it. Um, on the three defilements, why is clinging not a defilement? Or is that just part of craving? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and that's the answer. You know, we we craving for any experience is rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, and the immediate result of receiving whatever that is craved for is clinging or maintaining. So the the initiating um, action is craving. And clinging follows immediately. Thank you. That's, I, I didn't want to assume that, but that clears it up. Yeah, thank you um, for asking the question. When I was reading this uh, sutta, I, I thought about the salvific nature of these false dharmas and the salvific nature of all religions. And I think that that's what defines a religion versus a philosophy of life, which is one has a salvific 
component to it and the other one does not. Yep. Um, <laughs> you know, if Buddha came back today, he wouldn't be considered a Buddhist in, in terms of the Buddhist, the common idea of what Buddhism is. If, and, and the strange thing about it, when people ask me what this class is, I'm very hesitant to say it's Buddhism. Um, not because I, because it, it, it's just a name, but because the idea in their mind is the false darkness yes. that exists, that are commonplace, and not this Dhamma, not this philosophy that the Buddha has given us and, and taught for his life, during yeah, his life. That's true. So, and then the last thing is, is, uh, you know, again, this reminded me of this interaction on the first part of the, of the three marks where the, the not self seeking permanence and in permanent phenomena results in dukkha. And that's the battle that, you know, introspectively, I always, I have day to day that, uh, Jana helps me uh, gain understanding towards. So, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well said, Tim. Yeah, I was. It was just today that uh, someone on uh, a, a Zoom call, someone I, I had never met before, uh, was questioning my bona fides, and he said, "What? What, what do you do? You describe yourself as a Theravadan Buddhist? Most people would assume that." And I say, "No, I don't." Um, if, if someone has to wants to pin me down, I just say I practice the Buddhist Dhamma. And he kind of declared, you're not a Buddhist. You, I'm not going to say what he said, I am, but I'm a, uh, he declared that I'm part of the human anatomy, that it's just a small percentage of what actually constitutes a human being. But he thought that was me. So, and, and him, and I'm, you're saying that to make a point, maybe get a giggle out of it. It's not important if I get the giggle. He declared I was something that I'm not. And his declaration of that didn't make me so, did it? What was important in that moment was that I had developed the Buddha's Dhamma to, to the extent that I know what I am. And when you really know what you are, no matter what anybody calls you or thinks of you, it doesn't affect you. And, that, and that's not from a point of view of arrogance, is it? It's a, just a point of view of knowing. Um, so it, just so I could tell you how I concluded, I said if, to this gentleman, if you ever want to learn what the Buddha taught, please feel free to, to contact me again. And also... Please don't think twice about the things you called me because I, I was completely sincere about that. I hope that his, his guilt over what he called me, again, this is affecting me, not him, not me, doesn't preclude him from contacting me in the future. I hope, I hope he does, but that's all that I can do. And that's all we can do as Dhamma practitioners is not take anything personal, including the Buddha's Dhamma. Hello, Sarah! Okay, so it's hard for me to bow because I'm holding the phone. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> um, so this uh, sutta, is yep. that what you call it? Sutta, yes. Struck me. Um, it comes at a very timely moment in my life um, and in walking with people around me. And... I think it, what strikes me is there's a tendency in circles that I work for people to cling to me. 
yeah. um, to hold on to me. And, and I very much keep turning them back to the principles and to the, the truths, uh, the Four Noble Truths, or the Eightfold Path. And um, so I, I love even the way that this sutta starts out, you know, here they are, they're walking along and, they're, and, they, and they go to this meeting and, and Siddhartha says, okay, so what are you talking about? And they're like, hey, well, actually, we're talking about you. And he's like, okay, well, it's good that you've come this far. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, Do you notice that? If, if, you know, if if we're putting our happiness, basing our happiness on anything that's that can be ill or aging or dying or passing away, then you're we're going to be disappointed. And 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 then he goes on to talk about how you know before I was awakened, this is what these are the things that I based my happiness on. And then and then the thought occurred to me. What if I? <laughs> and I just, I just love that. Oh, what if I? <laughs> um, and and then he goes on this big quest, and I, and just even reading through his quest, um, I, I resonate with a lot of the things that he experienced, as far as things that that were even disappointing to him about different teachings that he encountered yeah. and what was missing in them, and he had this like list of things that were important to him that that it had to be it had to create um you know detachment and or you know it had to create unbinding where it wasn't going to be satisfactory and then he gets to the end he's like this this oh but where i found it's like this perfect place but it's so difficult to get (laughs) to get here and so therefore, how could I ever teach it to people who just insist on being attached to everything? <laughs> and, and then it occurs to him, oh, I know. Well, then I will just teach to the people who have ears and the ones who have eyes. <laughs> yeah. The ones, um, you know, who, who are ready to hear the teaching. And um, that's just a great realization that uh, not everybody is going to be ready for that. Yeah. to unbind from the world, but I don't have to let them attach to me either. That's right. Thank you, Sari. It's so great insight. And this, this suit and a few others um, really display the, the person, uh, the human being that Siddhartha Gautama was, the, the, his thought process, his, his own uh, initial doubts and speculation about what he was discovering. Um, and this and the Nagara Sutta, I think, are probably the two most uh, personal suttas. Uh, that he ever taught, and a great insight into the Buddha's focus on what he felt was important to understand, and so what what is important to us to understand too. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you, Sarah. Kevin, how are you? Doing well, John. Um, nothing to add tonight. Thank you very much for this teaching. Appreciate it. I'm glad you joined us. Hello, Brett. Thanks for your teaching. Um, good to see everybody tonight. Um, yeah, I, I don't have much to add to it, um, but I appreciate all the, you know, I appreciate the teachings and everything that went along with it. So good to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining, Brett. Hello, Ram. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. <clears throat> yeah, these searches uh, are. <clears throat> Um, they're strange journeys. Um, you 
in my own search, you know, which started when I was in my early 20s, um, <clears throat> I don't recall I was so much looking for salvation in, in that. Um, to me, it was uh, kind of looking for, for secrets. You know, and it turns out that you know everybody in the world is selling secrets, or at least access to the secrets. If you um, if you try hard enough, and if you if you, you um, participate and and kind of belong to the group more, um, they'll they'll dangle the the, the secrets in front of you. Uh, you know. And if yeah. they're not really clear explanations, I'll call it a mystery. Um, but the secret is often presented as salvation, though, isn't it? Pardon? The secret, in that case, is presented as your salvation, realizing the secret. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot being sold out in the world, you know, um, for... For people that are that are looking for things, yeah, and it turns out everybody is pretty much looking for something. You know? And if it's if it's not the almighty dollar, um, you know, there's there's plenty of others that will sell you secrets, and they'll want some of the almighty dollar in exchange for that. Yeah, uh, that's just about every system in the world today has that bottom line mentality. Even even if it's if, even if it's Wrigley selling a pack of gum, you know, if you buy their gum, you get two mints in one, not just one. It's their salvation in that that double mint, isn't there? And again, that's, I'm being, I'm not being all that silly, am I? This is how things are presented to us and have always been. Uh, yeah. Whether it's a spiritual secret or you know something special you can buy on the marketplace that nobody else can get, even though they sell a million of them a day, it doesn't doesn't really matter, is it? Yeah. yeah, it's even it's even sold as uh, if you're not charging for for you know the secrets that you have to uh, that you have to impart, um, you're you're not giving them uh, their real value. Yeah, even as a modern a so-called modern spiritual teacher, you need to have a you know a bag of tricks. You need to have some kind of magic trick you can show or or promise. Mm-hmm. Um, and geez, I don't, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Stay with me and you'll grow hair too. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I'm not only, I'm not only the president, I'm a client too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's all I had for today, John. Thank you, my friend. Hello, Julia. Yeah. Hello, John. How Hello, you? everybody. I agree with Rome. Um, ever since I was a little girl, I found myself looking for, I guess you could call it secrets or some form of some kind of truth, you know, and I, I too uh, um, studied many different practices. You know, I went, I, I even, I was, my family had gone away from even Catholicism and I said, okay, well, there must be something there. So I became a, a devout and a teacher and everything. And then I realized, wrong. This is not the place, you know. So I went from one one thing to another, kind of like the Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> and, and each each time I found that there was nothing there, you know. Although there may be some truths 
and everything there, but there was no, um, there, there was no path, no path to finally unbinding. Yeah. And that's the, and that's the key. And, um, and in the Buddha's teaching, there is a path to unbinding. And, uh, the basic, the basic thing is that we have to understand impermanence. We have to understand the three marks of existence and the four noble truths so that we can see that there is nothing here that can define or identify, you know, or can, can, can we find ourselves in this phenomenal world? Yes. Oh, that's what I have to say. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Julia. Yeah, the, the, the Dhamma has to be kept pure because it's too easy to corrupt it with mm-hmm. other views that seem reasonable, seem Dhamma-like, when they're, they're simply a distraction. You know, the, 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 the modern fo- uh, movement, is, uh, the body, bodhisattva ideal, is the most prevalent vow that uh, modern Buddhists take, the bodhisattva vow. And yet it's this, the thing that the Buddha says repeatedly, uh, describing himself before his awakening as an unawakened bodhisattva. Yet most of modern Buddhism aspires to be that unawakened bodhisattva. So I, I guess I need to clarify, bodhisattva means a person who puts aside their awakening until all sentient beings are awakened. That sounds entirely reasonable, doesn't it? It sounds very compassionate. Of course, it, it, it obviates and denigrates everything the Buddha taught. The Buddha awakened. He didn't say, uh-oh, I better not awaken yet because there's still 300 million people or 9 billion people that need to awaken, so let me hang on. He awakened, and then he taught everybody who would listen. As Julie said, those who had... Uh, just a dust, a speck of dust in their eye, uh, that, that are ready to see this. Uh, they're ready to hear it. They're present for it. Uh, the Buddha didn't say that you can't learn it. He said that you must learn it. And again, that's that's just the opposite of what is being presented today. So, uh, and again, it's not it's not right or wrong. It's just here's a dhamma and here's what it's not. Hello, Michael. Hi, John. Uh, I'm going to go with noble silence tonight. I'm glad you, you joined. <laughs> Rick, how are you? How's that kitty? Hi, John. Hi, everybody. The kitty's fine. I'm fine. Um, thanks for your teaching today. I, I guess the if I'm just going to pick up from anything, the the ignoble search and the noble search. And I found myself today. Uh, I meditated. This will be my third meditation today, and each time I had a very active mind. And the mind was either geared toward like something I wanted, like somebody laughing at this great joke that I told. Or um, I remember I was judging some family members from memories that that took place a while ago, but I was just getting a resentment or or judgment. And I that was the ennoble search. And I was but I knew it was noble according to what we were talking about, because I was getting lost in the story and identifying with the story. And I realized this is not very helpful. So. there was a lot of being aware of the feelings and the thoughts coming up during the meditation and saying, Oh, you know what? Do I want to stay with the story or (sighs) okay. So let me just come back to the rising and the falling of the breath. And once again, last five minutes, that's when I started to get my concentration. So that's it. Thanks. Thank you, Rick. And that was an an effective meditation, John, a meditation session. You know, that that's how it is. So thank you for being here. Jan, how are you tonight? I'm good, thank you. Um, yeah, I um, I am 
content to listen and pass on saying anything more, but thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you joined tonight, Jan. Thank Hello, you. Steve. How are you? Doing good, thank you. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit, buy you a, a, a big bright light for Christmas and send it to you. I want to see your face. I'm just, better. I'm just now. It's okay, Josh. Uh, thank you. It was very interesting, Sutra and kind of like show uh, Buddha searching. He left uh, one teacher. He left another teacher. Uh, also, he was wondering if uh, people going to be understand uh, his teaching or not. But and, uh, it's come back kind of like for uh, main his teaching is ignoring to for noble truth was uh, very interesting kind of like a repetition again. So. Uh, if you uh, view relate on your uh, sixth sense, it's uh, around you. It's kind of like uh, very good uh, reinforcement of uh, his teaching. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Steve. Yeah, it, it, as a Dhamma teacher, it, it's important to me to keep pointing it back to, you know, dependent origination and four noble truths, and the eightfold path is the path we we develop, uh, and it really is just that simple. The Buddha didn't teach anything else except he taught 84 additional suttas that support this understanding. So thank you, Steve. Hello, Meg. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, I've had a few uh, situations in the last couple of weeks where I realized when I look back that I was, I was able to practice this unbinding I'm reading this right now, this unbinding from views rooted in the ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. And I realized that what I did was these four steps, but I didn't know that that's what I was doing. <laughs> and so I'm reading this right now going, wow, what if I just took those steps and just like walked myself through that every time I had a situation, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I thought maybe I can, um, you know, get where I want to be, you know, uh, with a little less stress, you know, <laughs> and uh, do it a little bit faster, you know. But um, anyway, that's all all I really have. <laughs> Thanks, Meg. That is that. It's great insight to to realize just that, you know, the the. It, this is years and years ago when I was kind of waffling about getting involved in yet another Dharma practice, and, you know, still kind of stuck in and entangled in the fabricated dharmas until I realized that, you know, even if even if this isn't what the Buddha actually taught, it's still a much better way of living my life. And that kind of allowed me to jump in wholeheartedly. And then and then very quickly, I realized, you know, that just by focusing on what the Buddha taught to the exclusion of everything else made a difference in my life and it worked so uh and that's just the self-encouragement that i keep talking about what you just discussed meg it's important to recognize where the dhamma is working because then we are self-encouraging ourselves to continue it's not just the teacher it's not just the dhamma itself but as you yourself and through your own experience so thank you meg hello josh 
John. Thanks for the teaching. Thanks, Hi. everybody. Hi, everybody. Uh, I noticed the one thing that has helped me uh, more than anything else is being aware when I start taking things personally much more than I used to. And, and uh, it's almost like it just pops up. I don't, you know, just, and, and, and I, I, you have that gut feeling to start getting angry or anxious or, or whatever. And I realize that. And then I try to practice the Dhamma and, and uh, uh, let go of that. And, uh, well, I tell you, I still got a long ways to go with that craving thing. I, uh, <coughs> uh, just, uh, it's such a part of me and, and uh, uh, bound up so much in name and form with me that uh, uh, I've got a lot of work to do on that. But thank you for the teaching tonight. And thank you. Thank you, Josh. Uh, craving is us. You know, you could, you could call craving the aggregates. You could call craving karma. You could call craving ignorance. It's, it's all of those things. Um, and I wouldn't say you've got a long ways to go. You might have a, a few more breaths to go, but um, you have an understanding of the Dhamma that almost everyone on the planet is lacking, Josh. So give yourself a lot of credit for the work you've done and how far you've come. It's important. Self-encouragement, right? I'm glad you're here tonight, Josh. Hello, Jane. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. I'm in the dark here, too. Um, thank you so much for the teaching. I don't have anything to add except that your dog is a lot more active than mine. Mine yeah. just lays on the rug and listens to your teaching, and your, your dog is back there. He's, he's he's your sidekick, I think. He's not. He's getting luck. I told him never to play with toilet paper rolls, and look what he's doing. He doesn't uh, listen to me. Uh, I take everything. I like everything he does, I take personally. I don't know why. Stop, folks. <laughs> But uh, I do appreciate what you say about self-encouragement. I mean, that's very important. Yeah. So, thank you. Thank you, Jane. Yeah, we, I mean, we really can't do it without that. It's an aspect of being gentle with ourselves, too, not judging the way we apply the practice. As long as we're within the framework and guidance of the Eightfold Path, we're Dhamma practitioners. And as we're all saying, we're, re we're reaping the rewards. We recognize it. Hello, David. Hello. I, I like your use of the word ownership almost better than uh, personal yeah because we we do take ownership and I think that's where we start making accommodations in our practices uh, we we decide that this is off limits I will always be a good father I will always be this I own this this feeling uh, it's my idea that's off limits but the Buddha taught us that all things are empty in nature it's it, it can't be something owned it can be something controlled so therefore that's where the suffering follows so you know 
Tim brought up the defilements, and each one of those are manifested in our, the hindrances. Yeah. And that's where we can see it in action when we sit. And I can't concentrate beyond the most mundane level of concentration. That's my craving to do something other than to get to work on concentration. Yeah. So it, it is very interesting that the concept of ownership and I guess the toughest one uh, we often talk about is uh, our children and our, our, our love of someone. And these are rock solid when, of course, they're not. And that's where we make accommodations, and that's where wrong view seeps into our practice. But the Buddha was wise to, to say, be happy, be joyful for where you are. So it's always encouraging so thank you. Yeah, it, it, thank you, David. Yeah, this this whole the whole study of vipassana relates to what what David just said, what we've all just said. It all comes down to how we view ourselves in relation to the world, and if that's viewed in viewed, if that's rooted in reality, then the result will be a wise and compassionate life. If it's rooted in ignorance, there's going to be stress and suffering because of that ignorance, and that's that's exactly what the Buddha taught. But it's all that the Buddha taught. Um, so we're going to continue with this chapter. Um, it might even be three weeks on this chapter. You know, there's no time frame on this. And maybe we'll take our time uh, getting through this because there is so much in this one, uh, this one sutta. Uh, so we'll see. We'll, we'll take it as it goes. Uh, I'll finish with Metta as we always do. I got to hurry. Bodhi's had enough class tonight. Be right with you, Bodhi. Relax and meditate. The Buddha's words on Metta... On, on, uh, <laughs> On Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Peace. Thanks, John. Bye. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.